Total HIPAA compliance prepares employers that offer health benefits plans meet HIPAA compliance requirements. We complete the required documents and provide customized online HIPAA training through our HIPAA Prime service. Today's podcast covers issues important for employers who sponsor a health benefits plan. Jason Karn, Total HIPAA's Chief Compliance Officer, interviews Annette Bechtold, Senior Vice President of Regulatory Affairs and Reform Initiatives for One Digital. She is the upcoming State President of the Georgia Chapter of NAHU, as well as Vice Chair of the NAHU Legislative Council at the national level. Today's podcast is titled, What are the Compliance Issues Employers Face When They Sponsor a Health Benefits Plan? Annette, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. So uh, can you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? I think the most significant thing that I do is to help employers and health agents and brokers figure out the benefits landscape and understand what it is they need to do, should do, what's in the best interest of their employees, what, how, do, how do I as a broker or an agent, how can I provide value and bring the most um, benefit to employers trying to do this great thing of providing benefits to their employees. There's just so much to it. It's very complex. And I have the great luxury now of really being able to focus 100% of the time on just that. And so education is a big part of what I do for both employers, agents, and brokers, and in a number of industry settings, um, associations, et cetera, and uh, spend time speaking to all different groups, whether it's one-on-one, helping resolve specific problems, or talking about things in general. What are some of the biggest compliance issues you think employers are dealing with and things that they need to focus on? How am I allowed to treat my employees from a benefit standpoint? Who can I offer what to? Can I offer certain things to different groups of people? Uh, How can I fund it? How can I pay for it? Um, How can they pay for it? How can we structure ourselves to make it less expensive? I mean, those are the big questions. But the compliance pieces very often are HR-focused. They get Mm -hmm. into lots of situations which could attract the Department of Labor a lot of times they're looking for guidance on, you know, what should I do, what shouldn't I do. Um, so we see a lot of those types of things. And the other is just not understanding the things that come out from Washington, like last year, the year before, employer reporting. I don't know how to fill this out. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I, how Am I an applicable or just what? I don't get how to figure all these things out because they're too complex. So just knowing what they should do. But you know what? It's funny enough, it's not just new stuff. It is things that have been in existence for a long time, 5,500 filings. I didn't know we had to do that. I haven't filed for seven years because I didn't even know we were supposed to. So just getting to all the employers to help them understand whatever rules there are, um, I think is monumental. And while the government tries to put things out, I, I don't think there's any direct link to every employer to say, do you know what your obligations are? One of the, some of the biggest challenges that employers have to face? You know, for the smaller employers, it, everything comes down to price. It's really being able to still offer coverage that is meaningful. I, that is the biggest thing for the smaller employers. The rates are high. Mm-hmm. The coverage, uh, the out-of-pockets are even higher. They're getting to the saturation point, and by that mean, I mean where at some point, 
the amount of premium is not going to weigh what your out-of-pocket costs are before you get any any sort of reimbursement. And it's, and that's what I think we're going to start to see with the small group. A lot of small groups are there. They're like, what is the point? We're paying exorbitant rates, and I have a $5,000 deductible. I don't, I, I don't even know what I can do with that. It's not even like providing any coverage for for my workers, especially if the workers are not high-paid workers. So right. they're very concerned. There's that. That's the biggest uh, issue for the small employer. It's different based on groups. I, you know, talking to a very small group, maybe eight people, and you know, all of their employees are in their fifties and sixties, and they're like, mm-hmm. and but I have to buy a plan that has maternity coverage in for who? They're starting to question some of those things, saying, well, how could you reduce your rates? Well, I don't want all this this coverage in there. I don't need coverage for autism. We have four 60-year-olds on my plan. Do you know what I mean? There's Mm -hmm. different things like that that come up, but they are also governed not only by the Affordable Care Act, but the state mandates, and each state has lots of mandates in it. Right, right. Yeah. So so I I would say cost and coverage and that uh, balance between the two and where it's really worth it for the amount of money for a small employer is really probably the biggest thing. So what kinds of questions are employers asking about HIPAA? Do most of the employer groups that you guys work with, do they even know that HIPAA applies to them? I would say no, they don't. They really don't know HIPAA applies to them. Covered entities are required to have business associate agreements. Well, that would be the employer's obligation to execute a business associate agreement with us. Um, which they don't do because they don't even realize they have obligations or they don't understand they're a covered entity. They don't understand who a business associate is. They don't understand what their obligations are. I mean, they don't, right. they don't get any of that. So I think as an agent broker, we send them when we first work with them. Um, here's a business associate agreement and try to educate them about protected health information and um, helping them identify that, yes, you could be subject to these pieces. This is what protects you. And now it gives us the entree to have that conversation about, okay, this is what it is. These are your obligations. Let's start to talk about your what you do. Um, how do you do that? It's funny. I, I just I got a question just the other day from somebody who sent uh, one of our employer groups, their HR person, who just sent me a non-encrypted email with specific people's names, their social security numbers, and everything that was wrong with them, the help life. Wow. And you're like, no. you know. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it, there, there are teaching moments in there, but um, they don't know what they don't know. And right. so it gives us that opportunity by, you know, um, we have a great questionnaire from you, which we push out to say, hey, are you subject to this? Did you know you were? And then that starts that dialogue, and I think that's what's most important. When we do get a chance to talk to an employer group, it's about education. It's about saying, hey, not only is this for good good business practice for HIPAA, but you can actually expand this out beyond uh, your, you know, just your HR office. Um, we've had some mm-hmm. people use our, our plans expanding out because I think, you know, we're in a new world where, you know, you may, you probably as a company have proprietary information that you don't want your, you, you know, other people to know. You don't want scattered all over the web. Um, mm-hmm. So having security in general in place is a good practice when starting a business. Um, and it's interesting how that, that sort of like the like the health plan 
uh, security sort of falls, it becomes an afterthought. It's like, ooh, I got a great idea. Um, and you start building it. And then after the fact, you're like, wait a second, I actually need to protect this idea. Okay. What kind of questions are you guys getting from the, from your employer groups? Probably the number one is, do I still have to do employer reporting? Because it's been such a painful process for employers. So for those who are applicable to large employers, that's their number one question. So can I stop reporting? No. The answer is no, not yet. <laughs> you know, um, so that's because that is probably it's like anything. What's your most painful wound? That's what you remember to tell everybody about first, you know. So that's right. kind of what the, the employers are talking about is that. But, yeah, then it brings up those next questions, just like you said. Will I be obligated to? Will I have to offer? Will I have to start to offer to more people? How does that work? Will I have more choices? If I don't have to offer, then what happens to my employees? So then we start to get down to that piece. And, you know, as I mentioned, kind of the 21st century cures and how these small, how small employers have the opportunity now to say, I'm not going to be in the health business. I'm going to, not going to actually offer a plan, but I'm going to help pay, help my uh, employees pay for the plan that they find. Problem is right now, as, as we're telling folks, we got to look at your marketplace. If there's no carriers left in there for them to buy any individual coverage, what are you doing? Then they right. have nothing. So what's that going to look like? So, so for those in the states where there is little choice, um, their questions are significantly different than those who still have a bunch of choice in the individual marketplace. You know, some of them are like, well, we're stuck anyway. I mean, we're going to have to continue to offer more. And the other thing I'm seeing, too, Jason, on that end, is we're seeing a lot more um, local, um, either citywide or state pieces coming in that are requiring employers to do certain things. California's a great example. San Francisco, great example. Employers don't have a choice. They have to make a particular offer. Um, regardless of the Affordable Care Act. So we're starting to see some localities do some of those things as well. And if the American Health Care Act gets pushed in, then what we're going to see is more pushback to the states, and you're going to see 50, 50 different ways of what health what healthcare looks like in America because each um, state is going to decide based on their population and demographics what is going to work in their marketplace. So you're going to see a very um, a very different look than what we have today. And I think for some for large employers they're not really concerned about it because they're they're not really affected by state law. So mm-hmm. I see less concern out of the larger employers, a lot more concern out of employers, you know, under fifty or, or in like in California under hundred, you know, that aren't considered large. Right. The one size fits all uh, clearly isn't working for all the states either because of how their populations are, et cetera. Um, right. But then 50 different ways, is that the key too? Uh, who knows? You know, I mean, and like you said before, if we already, if we knew what would work, we would have done it already. So um, it'll be interesting to really watch how some of this plays out. And I think the, they'll end up someplace in the middle. You know, Senate's going to come up with their solution, um, but we've got, you know, a number of weeks before we see something like that. Right. What trends do you anticipate in the next, like, five, ten years? The number one thing on everybody's mind is market stability. Because if there's no, no, not enough uh, insurance offerings, then we're, we're out of this 
insurance business realm as far as this is how the whole thing works and it's going to be look significantly different. I do think they'll figure out the stability piece, um, but that is number one, I think, as far as a short-term goal is. I think managing the cost of medical goods and services, that that is the one thing I think over the next five to ten years you'll see significantly change because that is one of the biggest drivers is obviously the escalating cost for all the medical goods and services. It's gone up exponentially for 20 years, and nobody, there's been nothing to address that. And that's the underlying issue of why insurance rates and everything else are high because the cost of reimbursements are high, what's being billed. And so um, part of that is, you know, I think we'll have, we'll start to see, and there's been a lot of call for, but I think we'll see it come to fruition, a lot more transparency of cost to the consumer. Because right now, they, nobody if, if people have insurance, they don't know what anything costs because the, yeah, the, right. those costs are masked from them. And so I think we'll start to see much, much more transparency and with that, some value-based type pricing that comes in as well about, you know, what are you getting for the for that money? How good is this provider that I'm using? Nobody, nobody's ever questioned that. You know, that isn't right. part of our culture today. Annette, thank you so much for your time and insight today. We hope you enjoyed this installment of HIPAA Talk. If you have any questions you would like to ask our experts, you can find us on Twitter, at TotalHIPAA, our website, TotalHIPAA.com, or email us directly at info at TotalHIPAA.com. 